I want to invite up um, and introduce you guys to, to my friend Greg, Greg Kabachian. I met out in Denver when Pastor Matt and I went out there for the Acts 29 conference, and Greg is a church planning resident at one of our partner churches, um, Liberty Church up in Harrisburg, and he's a church planning resident there. Him and a friend of his, Ben Bechtel, are preparing to plant in Midtown Harrisburg. They're building their launch team this year and hope to launch um, in January of 24. So I, I told him that, that we're going to have him or Ben back maybe in the spring to give us more of a ministry update about what God's doing there. But just in this busy season of Advent, I was looking for some help with the pulpit. And so it's grateful just through the Acts 29 network to be able to partner. And I'm excited to hear from Greg this morning, uh, just as I've gotten to know him, a man who loves the Lord, is humble, is wise, is very careful, gentle, uh, 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 love and, and leadership for the Lord. And so uh, before I pray, brother, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and, and what God's doing in your ministry. So as Tim said, my name is Greg. My last name is Kabakshian, and he nailed it. He got it perfectly right. Um, I'm married to Alexis, who's over there. I won't make you stand up. Um, and we have one daughter, Lila, who's just turned two a few weeks ago. Um, we're We've been living in, uh, Midtown is a neighborhood inside the city of Harrisburg. We've been living in Midtown for, what, like three months now. Um, so not a long time, but we love it. Um, the, the desire for a church in Midtown really just came about because there were a bunch of Christians living in Midtown who were getting to know their neighbors and wished that there was a place that they could invite them to church. Mm. Um, and so that, that's why we're excited about it. Um, hopefully we'll be able to share a little bit more with you about that in the future yeah. too. Good stuff. Well, thanks for bringing the word. Guys, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you um, for the gospel. We thank you for uh, the community of churches all across the world, brothers and sisters that love Jesus, that are standing on the word of God, proclaiming the truth of, of Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to partner um, with these brothers and sisters that are planting just, just a little bit north of us. And we pray you'd bless and fill their ministry. And we ask now, God, that as, as Greg brings the word to us, that you would bless and fill him, that your spirit would speak through him, that you would open our hearts, give us an attentiveness to your word this morning. Holy Spirit, come, we submit to you, we open our hearts to you, stir among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you have Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Philippians 2. This morning we'll be in verses 1 to 11. And while you're getting there, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. I want you to imagine that for Christmas this year, you get a letter in the mail. It has your name on the front. It has no return address on it. And you open up this letter and the only thing inside is a, a yellowing crinkled piece of index paper and you find a note quickly scrawled on it and the note says this dear friend i won the lottery but i don't want the money i want you to have it now obviously you think to yourself this is a prank and a bad one at that and so you go to throw the envelope away, but as you do, another piece of paper slips out and flutters to the ground, and it lands face up, and you see that it's a check written out to you for $10 million. You're not fooling me, you think to yourself. But just in case this is just, you know, maybe more than a silly prank, you go to the bank to just see what would happen, and as you're sitting in 
the drive-through line waiting to see what will happen. You feel like such an idiot because you're sure that any moment one of your friends is going to pop out of the bushes and start laughing at you or the teller is going to call all the other tellers over and start pointing at you. But none of that happens and the check clears. You now have 10 million more dollars in your bank account than you did a day ago. What do you do with it? Now, I know this would never actually happen, right? There, there are plot holes in that story. Checks have the people's names on them, and they don't clear within a day. But just imagine that that happened. What would you do with $10 million? What would you do? Would you pay off your mortgage? Would you invest it? Put a small dent in your student loans. Finally fill your gas tank up all the way. Show of hands, how many people, I wonder, would give it all away, not spend a penny on themselves? How many people would give it all away? Yeah, me neither. Me neither. But I I read this week a story about a man who did just that. His name was Chuck Feeney. He was the richest man that you have never heard of. Chuck Feeney was not a millionaire, but a billionaire. And he became a billionaire not through an anonymous gift, but through co-founding a successful company. And as a successful businessman, he decided that he didn't want to spend his life amassing a a huge fortune just to die wealthy and have a foundation and a charity named after him. He wanted to give his money away while he still lived. And so he did just that. Over decades, Chuck Feeney gave over $8 billion, with a B, dollars away. And he did so anonymously. In fact, we only know that he gave this money away because a few years ago, a business deal went sour and this information got leaked to us. The New York Times tells us that today he lives in a small San Francisco apartment that he rents the size of a dorm room. He was a billionaire who gave it all away. Now, our text this morning is fascinating to me because Paul is going to say that our God did something very similar to Chuck Feeney. Paul is going to say that the eternal God who created the universe humbled himself and gave up the riches of heaven to become a peasant refugee child named Jesus. Chuck Feeney, as impressive as giving away billions of dollars is, pales in comparison to Jesus of Nazareth. And so, I invite you to listen with open ears as I read from this book that we love. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, Being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help. Father, as we, as we dive into your word this morning, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, prepare our hearts to hear your word. Silence in us any voices that are not our own, so that we may hear your word with open ears. Give us the humility, the faith, and the courage to put your word into practice. In your Son, our Savior's name, we pray. Amen. So if I had to say to you, in one sentence, would I believe the logic of this passage is, and, and the main point of this message this morning, in one sentence, it would be this. If you want unity, you must pursue humility. And if you want humility, you must pursue Jesus. If you want unity, you must pursue humility. And if you want humility, you must pursue Jesus. Let's talk about each of those two statements separately. First, if you want unity, you must pursue humility. Paul begins chapter 2 by saying, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he first, he wants them to be united, right? Look at the ways that he encourages his audience. Of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul wants nothing more for his audience than for them to think the same, feel the same, do the same, and be united in the gospel, That's because the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to unite together the unthinkable. It has the power to unite people like nothing else in the world. Uh, My my senior pastor, Pastor Matt, pointed out to me this week that in Philippi, the, the, the city that Paul was writing to, as far as we can tell, the first three Christian converts were a wealthy Greek businessman, businesswoman, actually her name was Lydia, a Roman jailer and his family, and a girl that used to be a slave. These are people who otherwise, other than the gospel, have nothing in common. This is one of the great beauties of Christianity. Where else in the world can you find a system that unites people of different skin colors different economic statuses, different political ideas, different family backgrounds, different hobbies, different skill sets, different vocations. Right? The good news of King Jesus is the great equalizer. No one is better than another person when both are at the foot of the cross. Right? The gospel means reconciliation with God. Absolutely. The gospel also has immediate social implications. And one of the most pressing of those implications is that as a church, we ought to be united. When Christianity began existing in the first century, it defied uh, like every category of social norms. Nowhere else in the Greco-Roman world could you find Jews, Greeks, Romans, tax collectors, former drunks, 
and prostitutes all sharing a meal together and calling one another family. The gospel, when it's rightly understood, creates an utterly unique human social order that defies all common sense. Think about it. Someday, when God remakes this world, we will laugh around a glowing campfire with those with whom we disagreed vehemently about masks and elections. Someday, the Apostle Paul will share a bottle of wine with the same people he persecuted. Or as I've heard it said, the Apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. That's what the gospel does. It unites otherwise unthinkable people together. Paul says in a different book that he wrote that in Christ, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. If he were writing a book to us today, you know, second Americans or something, he might say there is no Democrat or Republican, masked or unmasked, wealthy or poor. I, I am so deeply convinced that one of the greatest, if not the greatest witness to the truthfulness and the beauty of Christianity in our late modern era is a community of people that is unexplainable apart from the love of Jesus Christ. A steadfast unity that's unexplainable apart from the gospel. And so let me just ask you this. Is this true for your life? Is this true for you? We get really specific and say, do the people that you invite to your home for dinner all tend to look like you? Or how many of your friends are registered Democrats or Republicans? Whichever one of those two makes you more upset. As as I reflected on this truth this week, I I must confess, I... God has shown me I model this poorly. Personally, I tend to gravitate toward the people around me that I feel most comfortable around. Those people with whom I have the most in common from a worldly perspective. I gravitate toward those people who share the same interests. And in doing so, I inadvertently lay another brick back on the dividing wall that Jesus tore down. And I know that there are probably several of you, maybe many of you, even in the room right now, who have been hurt by a church or a pastor who has acted the way that I have so often acted. Probably not this church, but maybe one in your past. And if that's you, I just want to say, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. The church should not be a place where you once again are made to feel like an outcast. The church should be a place, a place unlike any other on the planet, of the most inclusion, a place where dividing walls crumble and social hierarchies go to die. And someday it will be that place, if it's not already. 
And that's what Paul wants for his Philippian audience. Paul wants this unity that the gospel causes. He wants this unity. But he goes on to say that this unity is impossible without humility. If you want unity, Paul says, you must pursue humility. Look with me at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, the key to lasting unity in the church, in your church and in every church around the globe, is not an airtight doctrinal statement. The key to unity in the church is not great events and programs. It's not stellar leadership. It's not good preaching. It's, it's not creative uh, and innovative ways to reach the community. The key to lasting unity in the church, Paul says, is humility. Not just among the leadership, but among all the members. Or you could say it negatively like this. The greatest threat today, in this age and in every age, to Christian unity in the church is not persecution. The greatest threat to Christian unity in the church is not political division. The greatest threat to Christian unity is is not liberal Christianity. The greatest threat to Christianity, to Christian unity, is actually you. And me, it's us and our selfishness that would have us look to our own interests as if our interests are more important than the interests of other people. Now notice, this is not like self-abasement or lack of confidence. C.S. Lewis famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less Right? And I think that quote kind of falls in line with the, the spirit of Philippians 2, right? Be more concerned about how your friend's days at work go than you are with your own. This isn't self-hatred, it is self-forgetfulness. Humility has less to do with the quality of thoughts about yourself and more to do with the frequency of thoughts about yourself. Right? If you're thinking about yourself all day long, whether your thoughts are good or bad, chances are it's not humility. I had this realization the other week where, just personally, I realized for myself, there are two ways that I can walk into any social gathering, a Christmas party, for example, or church. Two ways. One, I can walk into the social gathering primarily focused on myself. Asking questions like, not explicitly, but asking questions like, man, I, I really, I hope they think I'm smart. I wonder if they're going to like me. Don't say anything stupid. Act normal. The second way everybody enters a social gathering is possibly this. You can walk into with humility without your, your questions being focused on yourself, but focused on other people. How can I serve them? I wonder how their day is going. I wonder how their job is. And everybody picks one of those two ways every single social gathering they enter. And so, 
Really, so self-loathing and pride are not opposites. They're different manifestations of the same self-centered worldview. Person A walks about with a swagger, consumed by thoughts of themselves. Person B walks around with their shoulders slumped and their head down, consumed by thoughts of themselves. And both of them are self-consumed, and neither one has humility. Biblical humility is antithetical both to self-adoration and to self-loathing. It is looking out, as Paul says, for your own interests, but also the interests of others. But how, just how do we get such humility? Well, Paul says, if you want humility, you must follow Jesus. So if you want unity, you must have humility. And if you want humility, you must follow Jesus. And so in telling his Philippian audience to be humble, Paul tells them to follow Jesus. And when he does so, he, he literally breaks into song. In verse 6, Paul begins reciting which was what was most likely a very early Christian hymn. And, and he says this. Don't worry, I'm not, I'm not going to sing it. Um, he says this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you look closely at this text with me, there are a few interpretive difficulties. The first one is this. What in the world does it mean that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Right? Verse 6, depending on how you read it, can make it seem like Jesus was not fully equal with God, and in fact, he didn't even count equality with God something he could possibly grasp. But that is not what Paul is saying. That's not what this text means. Now, It's a little difficult because the word in Greek that is translated as grasped here is what scholars call a hypox legomenon. That is, it only occurs one time in this entire book that Paul is writing. And actually, not only does it occur one time in this book that Paul is writing, it occurs one time in every book that Paul wrote. And not only does it occur one time in every book that Paul wrote, it occurs one time in the New Testament. And not only does it occur one time in the New Testament— but it occurs one time in the entire Bible. The one time that this word is used in the entire Bible is right here. And not only is it only used one time in the Bible, this word is very difficult to find in any first century source outside the Bible as well. So it's really difficult to come to a sure and steady meaning of this word. But most likely, what this word means is to grab violently or to like wield to one's own advantage. In fact, if you have a fairly recent translation of your Bible, um, if you look at verse 6 here, many of them will even have a footnote that says something like, um, or to use selfishly, or to use to your own advantage. One scholar puts it like this. He says, quote, when harpagmas, which is the Greek word that's translated as 
grasped is understood as something to be selfishly exploited, Christ's decision does not imply that he gave up his equality with God, but that he expressed his equality with God. This person, Jesus, did not view his divine being and rank as something to use for his own selfish advantage. The great rulers— Heroes and gods of the citizens of Philippi were famous for exploiting their positions of power. When did the emperors Caligula and Nero, the great conqueror Alexander the Great, or the gods Apollo and Zeus ever not regard their positions as advantages to exploit? But the one existing in the form of God said no to selfish exploitation of his position and said yes to the form of a servant. In our lives, this rings true as well. We are used to everyone with power using it for their own selfish advantage. From CEOs and business owners to politicians and government employees. Basically, in our world, everyone with power uses it for themselves. Think of why Christmas exists in our culture. Why does Christmas exist in our culture? Not because there is a widespread appreciation for the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Not because all, you know, the CEOs of Amazon, Target, and Walmart got together and said, hey, like, I really think we need to honor the ancient Christian liturgical calendar. No. Christmas exists widespread in our culture because large companies can make a profit off of us. Christmas exists and enjoys such, so many commercials and TV because they can leverage our discontentment and our nostalgia to make killer profit margins. I, I, was, in the, uh, I was checking out at Marshall's the other day. Um, if you've ever been to Marshall's, you know that they have this like, obscenely long checkout line with all of the like, little trinkets that they make you stand there and wait. And we were um, waiting there. I was waiting there with my daughter, and there was this doll that she really wanted to buy, and she was screaming because she wanted to buy it. And I was trying to calm her down and explain to her, Lila, listen, like, these items are here because of what merchandisers call point-of-purchase placement. And, um, and they're not there for your good. They're trying to use your boredom. And uh, they, they've placed these small, colorful, carryable items there to try to make a profit off of you. And um, she didn't respond too well to that, mostly because she's two years old. But the, the point is, the point is, almost everyone in this world uses worldly status and power for their own advantage. And Paul says here, Jesus isn't like that. God isn't like that. Everyone else uses, our, uses us and uses their power to get our vote, take our money, sell our data, use our labor, but Jesus isn't like that. He does not wield his power to get something from us or to his own advantage. Rather, he wields it to free captives and to make broken lives whole. And so Paul continues reciting this hymn in verse 7. He says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now, some theologians have taken this verse here, the he emptied himself, um, to mean that God in the incarnation, when he took on flesh, actually gave up some of his divine attributes. You talked about this in your sermon a little bit last week. I was, uh, yeah, I creeped on your sermons and watched them. And so, um, But that is not what this means. Paul is not saying that in order for God to become human, he had to give up his uh, omnipotence, that he was all-powerful, or his omniscience, that he was all-knowing. Rather, we must look at the rest of verse 7. How did God empty himself? Paul tells us, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, He did not empty himself by giving away parts of himself. He emptied himself by taking on a human nature. This is subtraction by addition. Brian Chappell illustrates the idea of Jesus emptying himself by relaying a story from an African missionary. And I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. Um, This missionary tells the story that in this particular part of Africa, the chief is the strongest man in the village, the most physically able man in the village. And the chief has a fancy headdress and robe. And one day, um, another man in the village fell while he was at the bottom of a well and broke his leg. He couldn't climb out. And in fact, nobody could get him out. And so the people of the village went to the chief And they begged him for his help because he was the only one strong enough to carry this man out. And the chief, in his grace, took off his headdress, laid aside his robe, climbed down the alternating slats that led to the bottom of the well, put this man on his shoulders, and climbed out. In a sense, this is what God in Jesus Christ has done for us. He has laid aside the riches of heaven, like the chief laid aside his headdress, climbed down into our muck and our grime, and carried us out. What we celebrate at Christmas is not that our God gave up his attributes, but that our chief, our God, took off his headdress, climbed down to wade around in our mess, our grime, and our filth. Christmas is a celebration of our, of our God getting dirty. Not sinful, but soiled. Think of this truth. Just meditate on it with me for just a moment. This is insane. God became a baby. The infinite took on finitude. The God who was robed in heavenly splendor now lay fast asleep while Mary stood rocking him and maybe screamed every time Mary tried to sit. The God who created the hands of Joseph, Jesus' father, now lay wriggling on his back while those same hands changed his diaper. The God who spoke the stars into existence now had to learn how to say the alphabets and perhaps struggled with his R sounds. The immutable God of changelessness now had to go through puberty. The God of righteousness now plunged into an ocean of sinners. The God of all authority 
learning obedience to his earthly parents. The ultimate artist of the universe, now in his father's workshop, struggling to cut in straight lines. The infinite God of wealth, now wandering around an outcast homeless man in his early 30s with no place to lay his head and nowhere to call his home. The one who existed perfectly in the fellowship of the Trinity now walks the streets lonely, rejected by his family, forgotten by his disciples. The perfect God of justice now hanging, punished for a crime that he did not do. The God of glory now hanging naked on a criminal's cross. The God who gives us every breath we've ever breathed, including the ones you're breathing right now, screaming in agony as the breath was stolen from his lungs. When we think of the extent to which our God stooped, church, it is nearly impossible to not be humble. How dare we look upon the God of riches who became Jesus Christ and then walk about with a spiritual swagger as if we're better than anyone. If we want unity, we must pursue humility. And if we want humility, we must look at the person of Jesus Christ. I want to close with a story that Joshua Ryan Butler tells in his book, The Pursuing God, that I, I just think conveys the meaning of this text in a beautiful way. And, uh, this is weird, maybe, but I invite you to just close your eyes and imagine it. He writes this. I once had a vision of an artist painting a masterpiece. With lavish brushstrokes and bold strikes, he threw splashes of rich, beautiful color, pouring himself into his painting with passion on a large wall-sized canvas bordered by an ornate golden frame. When the masterpiece was complete, he took a step back and gazed with joy upon the wonders his hands had made, as if to say, it's good. Something strange then, however, happened next. A small, dark spot appeared in the center of the painting. I thought, what is that? The artist watched as the mold-like decay began to spread, like a crack in the windshield that starts at a point but gradually expands its fissures and fractures into the hole. The invasive intruder began to stretch its thin, scraggly arms, creeping its corruption throughout the canvas. The masterpiece was threatened with destruction. What will the artist do, I wondered. What happened next was the strangest, most bizarre thing I would have ever expected. The artist lifted his leg, extended it forward, and stepped into the painting. First his leg entered the canvas, then his torso, and finally his head, and then with a whoosh, the integration was complete. The artist stood within the work his hands had made at the center of his masterpiece. 
That's weird, I thought. But even stranger was what happened next. The moldy rot began to attack the artist. The great painter had positioned himself in such a way that the central point of invasion was right over his heart. As the tentacles retreated from the cornered edges, they sank into the artist himself, blow by blow by blow. The artist received the corruption at the core of his masterpiece until finally it was gone. The masterpiece was restored. The artist had absorbed the destructive power until it was extinguished. To my surprise, however, the artist didn't step back out of the painting. Having united his life with the canvas, he remained permanently at the center of his restored masterpiece. In a way, however, restored didn't seem like the right word because the work was now even more glorious with his presence inside it. He brought radiance and beauty such that the painting seemed to glow with life. There was a sense that this was always the way it was intended to be. The artist at the center of his painting. This was the true masterpiece. You can open your eyes. Church, Jesus' humility, the great painter stepping into his painting, is not only your example, it's also your salvation. Therefore, I, I charge you to go and walk in humility. Do not let yourself be consumed with thoughts of yourself, either high ones or low ones. But look to the interests of others. Be united in one mind. Because if you want unity, you must have humility. And if you want humility, you must pursue Jesus. As the band comes forward, let's close in prayer together. Father, in this Christmas season, we pray that you would help us see anew the glory of your Son's incarnation. The joy that you are not a far-off, distant God, but you are the artist that has stepped into his painting, the humble God who has come down to us. And now as we continue in worship, we, we ask you, remind us of how this Christ hymn ends. That Jesus Christ now has the name that is above every name. And that every knee shall someday bow before him. By your spirit, help our knees bow before him today. Help us worship this king, this Lord, this great painter in his painting. In spirit and in truth, we pray. Amen.